because rationality is a label. Are you rational or are you not? Just say, how close to reality do you want to be? And science has developed methods and tools for you to see what is real, objectively real, so that you can make decisions that are in the best interest of your life, uh, your health, your longevity, and for your loved ones. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. On this episode of The Rational View, we have a special treat. Grammy Award-winning former Harvard wrestler and ballet dancer, popular science educator and astrophysicist, the articulate and witty director of the Hayden Planetarium, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, is joining us today. Selected as one of the 100 most influential persons in the world by Time magazine in 2007, Dr. Tyson was awarded the Stephen Hawking Medal for Science Communication in 2017. Dr. Tyson, welcome to The Rational View. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's a a concise, flattering (laughs) intro. (laughs) Oh, I have to correct one thing about it. Uh, I was nominated for a Grammy, didn't actually get the Grammy. And you can get a Grammy for narrating... Uh, one of your own books or any book, you can get a, a Grammy for that. So it gets as an audio product. And so, but I was delighted to have been nominated because I got to attend the Grammy Awards. <laughs> and in that, that year, I, I live in New York, and that year it happened to be based in New York City. Okay. Uh, they held the Grammys in New York City that year at Madison Square Garden. So I, I was delighted to just participate. It's quite a diverse uh, portfolio of, of, you know, very broad <laughs> ranging things. I didn't know until I looked <laughs> you up on, on Wikipedia that you were also a ballet dancer and a wrestler. So that was that was interesting. Yeah, so, so not that Wikipedia, I'd say the Wikipedia page is maybe 90% accurate. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I was a performing member of three different dance companies, one of which also did ballet, but uh, the, um, it, it did other genres as well. Uh, in that international Latin ballroom, uh, there was jazz dancing in there. Excellent. Sort of show tune type dancing. So, <laughs> um, so the, the, the broader truth is that I, I, I danced in, in, in troops, but it's not the Bolshoi. Just to make it clear. <laughs> no, no. I have to ask you about one of these things I found. I found on Wikipedia, it says in the year 2000, you were named the sexiest astrophysicist alive by people magazine. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. And that was also just want to be clear. I guess, do they still do that each year they had in September, they had the, the sexiest man alive issue. And that issue on the cover is the sexiest man alive, as judged by their panel. But what you might not know is the entire issue is filled with sexiest men alive, but in in subcategories. Right? <laughs> so, so uh, I, you know, Brad Pitt that year was sexiest man alive. Okay, oh, okay, okay. We got yeah, that sure. one <laughs> clearly, uh, and then uh, they had all the different categories. And I don't know how competitive my category is when you consider other categories that they had sexiest action star sexiest model sexiest professional athlete sexiest news anchor you know there's a lot of very competitive categories there and so i i don't you know so i I don't know who i beat out so i I, it's not something to get big-headed about i I guess I, i must have missed the call for nominations 
<laughs> so plus that was by the way the 2000 that was 40 pounds ago just if you want to reckon time <laughs> not only temporarily but but also by by weight we're, we're right. all fighting the bulge from from sitting at home i see uh so you're pro promoting your newest book it's called welcome to the universe uh can you tell our listeners a little bit about it yeah yeah it's it's got a little backstory actually i mean i have a copy of it here of course <laughs> um it's actually a, it's a, a brief welcome to the universe a pocket-sized tour and i have two co-authors uh, michael strauss and richard gott uh they the three of us here, now here's the back oh, by the way this is really like it really is brief pocket size it, it is a literal pocket-sized tour it's not just the fantasy of that. And the backstory is the three of us uh, taught a class at Princeton, an introductory astrophysics class at Princeton. Uh, they're still at Princeton. I I'm, became later director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Uh, so there was an intro astrophysics class that had never been taught and we were going to teach it. And the, the truth is not, none of us wanted to teach the whole class. Because we have like other stuff we wanted to, it was it was not a priority. So we said, why don't we each just teach part of it? In that way, that would free time in our schedule. So we split up the universe, and I taught sort of Earth, Sun, Solar System, stars. Uh, Michael Strauss taught galaxies, and Rich Gott taught. He's an expert on Einstein relativity. Uh, he taught cosmology and time travel, and cool. so. That course started out with like 45 people in it. And then in a couple of years, it had 300. And we had, to, we had to move venues like twice just to accommodate that. It became really popular. And so we were flattered by that. And we realized that the way we were teaching it, it, it had some innovations to it, some sort of, sort of fun, uh, fun ways to go in and out of what would otherwise be kind of kind of um, unfun information. And so we, so we decided to write a book based on that course. And, and it was a, it, it was textbook sized, mm -hmm. but you could read it as though it wasn't a textbook because it was very conversational. It was very, come on in, let's check out the universe. And the, the best, the title that fit was welcome to the universe. Right. Okay. And that was a big fat book. We even created a, a problem solving companion book to go with it in case you really wanted to use it as a textbook, even though you could sit down and read it. And then that got, that was popular. And then the publisher, Princeton University Press said, why don't we make a, a sort of cherry picked version of this? Reader's Digest condensed version. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, it's not just condensed because if you condense it, that means you're shrinking the full volume. What we did instead was say, no, let's leave that out. No, not that. There's a good one. Let's put that in. So not only was the textbook sort of handpicked for what was really cool in the universe, this is a handpicked version of that textbook. So this is singing with uh, some of the most interesting bits of information and insight and understanding that you could ever put under one cover. So we're all quite proud of it. It just came out. Okay, so this is very approachable um, for the for the general public, uh, kind of a low level introduction. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, the original textbook had math in it, and this one, all that math has been removed, uh, of course. Okay, you, you can't have anything brief that has math in it. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> 
You'll scare people away. Yeah, yeah, it has to match the title of it. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, when he wrote the, ver the very uh, big seller, A Brief History of Time, was warned by his publisher that, because no, we knew who he was professionally, but the public really didn't know about him at the time, or, or that he's in a wheelchair or it's par you know, paralyzed, has this, this debilitating condition. And <clears throat> so we knew about him, but not that that's relevant. I just want to say he was not known at the time. So the publisher said, uh, our research shows that for every equation you put in the book, the potential audience is cut in half. <laughs> wow. So one <laughs> equation is half, two equations is one fourth, three equations, one eighth. You know, you just do the one half to wow, the n okay. power. Okay. And so I think there, there might have been two or three equations in it. And it was one of the biggest selling books of all time. Imagine if he hadn't put them in. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be one every person else. Right. <laughs> that's cool. So, yeah, that's great. Um, I also see that you've started your own podcast, Star Talk. And it looks like you're addressing some important societal issues in this podcast. I, I looked at a couple episodes. If you want to give a quick shout out to my listeners, maybe we can give you guys a big boost. Okay, no, I'd be delighted. Uh, actually, the, uh, it started out as a radio show, a terrestrial radio show, terrestrial meaning uh, radio stations. And that was about 12, 13 years ago. And it was birthed, again, this is kind of backstory. I don't know if anybody cares, but it was birthed with a grant from the National Science Foundation. Oh, nice. Uh, we told the National Science Foundation, look, most science on the radio, is like from uh, public stations, you know, where every three months they have to beg you for money. And I said, I think we can make science way more interesting than that on a level where sponsors would want to buy ad time. So to, to turn it into a commercial entity like anything else is, all right, like, like sitcoms, like, like anything. All right. It's they have some magic fact about them that allows them to be self-sustained in the marketplace. And I thought science, I know people like science on a level higher than I think what is previously recognized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they said, we'll go with you. And so they gave us a three year grant because you have to be able to make the show, even though no one's paying for it. All right. And then you, sh you then, then pe people see the show. They say, hey, let's get into that. So. We got a three-year grant, but it, it took five years to, to operate in the black and with a bridge grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation because we told them about it too and they were excited. So after five years, uh, it became self-sustaining. Wow. It's been self-sustaining ever since. And what we do, is, the, the secret sauce, if you will, is we combine the science with humor and pop culture. Okay. So this is this is kind of a woven tapestry. So my co-host is always a professional stand-up comedian. And now not the kind that just only tells one-liners, that's a one kind of comedian. Another kind of comedian is very observant and will find something humorous in what you say. Mm -hmm. So they became a force of levity okay. in the program. The science is a force of gravity, and the pop culture is the 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 per, people's access point to the program. And uh, so, for example, we might have a, uh, one of our guests might be a, a celebrity mm -hmm. uh, or an actor who starred in a sci-fi movie, right? And if that sci-fi movie involves space travel and what, well, well, 
use the celebrity, that's the pop culture side, as an excuse to get their fan base to come listen to them because fan bases follow their, their people around. And they then get to learn about the actual science of what the actor was in. So the actor, okay. you, you come okay. for the celebrity and then you stay for the science. That's great. That's the sort of classic combo that we invoke. And if the celebrity happens to be about something where I don't carry that expertise, we'll bring in another uh, academic expert. And so we always have an academic perspective on whatever is the pop culture dimension about which you are smiling because we have a professional comedian. When you combine all three of those, it becomes quite potent, I think, mm. especially as evidenced by the, the, the fan base that the show has accumulated over, over those years. So it went from there, then it was satellite radio, and now it's, it's a podcast um, and a YouTube show. Okay. And nice. uh, we spent we, we spent three years as a TV show, uh, National Geographic, ah. uh, and so that was fun. We, it was it was like a talk show. We had everything but the band. <laughs> I thought, nice. Maybe we could have a, like a science band, but we were just just getting off the ground, and I, I couldn't picture how we would include the band because all the all the good talk show hosts have bands, right? And uh, so. But, but what happened since then was that Fox bought National Geographic and Disney bought both Fox and National Geographic. And so so all of this uh, product, especially the Cosmos series that I was uh, privileged to host, uh, which had aired on National Geographic and Fox, those you find all those on Disney Plus right now. Ah, okay. Very good. Very good. I was yeah. browsing your Star Talk episodes. And I noticed you got Richard Dawkins on the show, the Sir Richard Dawkins. Yeah, yeah. Was he a sir? I didn't know that. Okay. I, 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 I think so. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. I once requested an interview with him, you know, to discuss evolution because uh, you know, looking at the rational view on evolution and addressing polarizing topics in the public. And you know, I emailed his assistant and I was, you know, kind of on a bit of a high from, from booking this interview. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get Richard Dawkins now too. And this email showed up in my inbox from Richard Dawkins. And I thought, no way. And I opened it up and it said, no, sorry, I think not. <laughs> just, oh, okay. just read. <laughs> oh, the email has an accent? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine him saying that. I guess that syntax is British, and so then you get to put a little Brit accent on it. No, he's a busy guy. I mean, the guy is highly prolific. Uh, he was influential on my life, just his his writing style, his facility with words, and his, uh, you know, how he can articulate ideas. Uh, some of that is just because he's properly trained as a Brit, and the rest, I think, is, you know, because they were all jealous of how they, you know, of their command of the English language, <laughs> they being English, uh, but uh, he's, he's, he's very busy and engaged in many projects, so I, I wouldn't take it personally. No, 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 I, I didn't. It's just, I, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was funny, the, 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 the brief message, <laughs> no, sorry, I think oh, yeah, not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, okay. Well, would you rather he wrote five paragraphs to tell you no? I mean, what would you, no, no, no. I, it's part of the job. I, I get it. But it, it was just funny. I could mm -hmm. just imagine his accent coming through. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it, it's good to see uh, on your on your podcast you've been actively advocating uh, for COVID nineteen vaccines. Way to go! I've learned uh, on this show 
it's difficult as a popularizer to take a stand on a polarizing issue. And I, my goal that I set out for this podcast was to just do that on, on many issues, to try to discuss the science and evidence and take it where it leads. But I think I didn't really understand the implications of this, as you said, with your equation uh, in books thing. This is similar to equations with books. Every time you take a stand on a polarizing issue, um, you risk losing half your audience. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's entirely resonant with it. So I learned very early, and I learned this primarily not so much through StarTalk, but through uh, my social media uh, platforms, that the, uh, it is not useful to express an opinion. Because in social media, uh, people get angry if your opinion does not agree with theirs. And that's an extraordinary point of, in the evolution of people's capacity to communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, extraordinary in the sense that, really? Do you want everyone in the world to have exactly your opinion on things? Well, that's uh, that. Uh, there are, you know, societies like that. They're called dictatorships, and everybody ha has to think and feel exactly the same way. And there's hardly any plurality of views and conducts and beliefs and all the like. It, it sounds like it could, it could be unifying, but but be careful what you wish for. And so much of what makes the world interesting is because we're all different from one another. And so I've instead carefully not expressed opinions and only offer perspectives that may inform your opinion. Now, because people, with my level of social media following, typically people with that level are opinion or thought leaders, as we call them, or, or pundits or whatever. And so they're expecting that I'm handing them an opinion. So many cases, I've just simply put out information and people have interpreted it as an opinion. Mm -hmm. And and so that's intrigued me because what it means is there are people with, with a lens through which they interpret the world and everything is tribal when seen through that lens. The, the, there's a missing capacity to see information factual information that conflicts with your belief system about the world. And I'll just give a quick example that happened just a few weeks ago. I had all of these tweets since March 6th, 2020. I must have posted maybe 20 tweets, 30 tweets about COVID, mm -hmm. all informational. And I said, wow, we still have a fourth of the country not getting, the United States, not getting vaccinated. All right, let me see, let me try one more tactic. So I looked at how many people were dying every day. At the time, it was 1,000. Wow. Right now, it's even higher than that. Dying every day from, excuse me, unvaccinated people dying every day from COVID. Okay. Okay? It was, it was rising through 1,000. Mm -hmm. And 98% of anyone in the hospital sick from COVID or dying from COVID were unvaccinated. So all these numbers conspire here. And so I said, then I checked that the, the demographic, uh, uh, where the demographics fall on this, and out I, out I said, so about a thousand people are dying every day from COVID, which means every 10 days, 
more than 8,000 unvaccinated Republican voters are dying, which is five times the rate of Democrats. Hmm. So I thought to myself, the Republicans would get together and say, we need voters. Okay, We, we don't want to kill off all our voters because we want to <laughs> win Congress in the next the midterm election, all right? Because some, you know, that adds up. And particularly in districts and regions and counties, this can make a difference. So, so I thought that's how it would be received. As an educator, I put a lot of thought into what the receptors are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the information, might be in the mind of to the information that I'm putting out there. But that's not, fights broke out. It was like, I, you know, I follow you for science, not because, you know, now you're getting political. I said, I'm not getting political. These are the data. All right. It's like and, and people said, uh, uh, how can I b- believe what you're saying? I don't I don't believe it. Those numbers must be made up. And there was a there was a denial hmm. of this blunt truth that stared them right in the face. Now, of course, the numbers are accurate. And I put way more thought into what I post than typically people put in to how they react, right? I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I put way more thought into it. But um, so, and people re- reported that tweet as offensive. And if you report a tweet as offensive to Twitter, Twitter has to then put it in front of a panel to analyze it. And then they come back to you and notify you whether they had to take down the tweet or not. And I got this letter to say, it's been reported, we've evaluated, and... No, we've decided it is not does not contain offensive material. Something. I'm glad that the truth is not offensive. Yeah, of all yeah. the things that are on social media, this one has got to be reviewed by you. That's kind of weird to me. So yes, um, this thing looked like an opinion because it got into the social cultural divide and put information there, but in fact, it was not. And not to talk this whole time, but let me give you one more example. Uh, after one of the horrific school shootings, um, I noted, and I, I just posted it, uh, I said, at Walmart, the world's largest gun seller, you can buy an AR-15 rifle, yet company policy bans the sale of pop music with curse words. That's all I posted. <laughs> That's all it was. Okay. Perspective. That does not contain an opinion. It's a, it's a contrast mm-hmm. of facts mm-hmm. for you to just do with what you want. Maybe you didn't know that. You probably didn't know that. Right. And people divided over it. Again, there's this interpretive lens that so many people carry. Um, as, you, as you know, the, in our First Amendment, we, there's the protection of free speech. And the Second Amendment, interpreted by many, is the right to carry guns. And so the, the audience split. I, I would say 20% said, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That, that was my expectation. Then the rest split down the middle between... Um, uh, it's a it's a private company. They can they can choose to not sell bad words. I think that would be bad for children. That's that's their prerogative. And the other half said, uh, Second Amendment protects the, the gun ownership. They could share. and people they were thinking I was arguing one or the other of those two views. Hmm. Yet I was arguing neither. So the so the the world artificially divided 
because this is their, I'm guessing, this is the urge, which is just what you're talking about uh, in there. So, yeah, if, and if you hold a point of view, what will happen is you lose the people who don't agree with the point of view, and then you're only speaking to the converted by the end. So I try hard to, oh, here's what I do. I give if-then statements. Maybe, maybe okay. you can do this. Okay. So another one of my COVID tweets was, for some states to have mask mandates, while other states do not, is like designating a peeing section of the swimming pool. <laughs> okay, that's all it is. Yeah. It's an, an if-then statement, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it, is it an opinion? Uh, it's just facts, really, okay? You can't, if you want to contain a virus, you can't have adjacent areas have different rules about it. So... Um, I see what you're doing. Uh, yeah, that, well, that's, that's the point. Those two are ways to highlight um, insights that maybe you don't otherwise carry in your tribalistic views. Interesting, interesting. What, you mentioned the fact that um, Twitter, um, some, some shady group in Twitter gets to review uh, all these quotes and, and decide whether or not they're, they're allowable or not, and like the CRTC. They'll only review it if, <laughs> if someone complains about it. How, how do you feel about that? Is it, is it effective? Is it, you know, is it hindering free speech? Is it, is it helping the conversation? I, I'm, I'm kind of split about these things. I don't know. What I do know is, given all the crap that's online, my tweet, is that tweet was going to be reviewed for being offensive? That's just, that was a little disturbing to me. Yeah, that yeah, it's, facts it's... can be viewed by some people as offensive and then Twitter reviews them. If that's the case, what, tell me about the stuff that's actually getting through that is in fact, <laughs> that, you know, what? And who decides? I, so I'm a little worried, you know, for the platform in that, in that sense. It's just a little worrisome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like I like your the way you uh, choose to provide perspective. I, I think you can uh, bring in opinion by on what you choose to highlight without explicitly bringing in opinion. I think. Yeah. So I guess, uh, in all fairness, the tweets that I post only because there's a view that comes from a place. There is a place where these views come from, and and this is what enables the <clears throat> the construction of the tweet. Uh, in the first place. I was early out of the box on COVID, March 6th. You know, uh, institutions are, are just at the brink of shutting down and meetings are getting canceled. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, uh, <clears throat> the COVID, uh, COVID is like an invasion, like an alien invasion that attacks only humans. And it doesn't care about your religion, your politics, your ideology, your thing. Uh, it is an enemy of the species. And we need to have a coordinated effort to combat it that is based on science and rational thinking and not based on science and not on magical thinking. Right, right. Yeah, indeed. That's so is that an opinion? I mean, I guess it could have said. No, we don't need to fight it. I, I could have said a lot of different things, but I'm trying to protect the species. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, no one, 
not no one, but many people didn't heed this kind of advice. And I, of course, I was the least of the people giving that advice. There were health professionals and the CDC and all, all of this. I just felt responsible because of the size of my following. And I might be the only scientist that many people follow in their social media platforms. Sure. So I felt, I felt some duty to put that kind of information on it. But in no time do I say, get vaccinated. You should be vaccinated. I've never said that. I just give the consequences of not being vaccinated. I see. Well, that, that's that's very rational. I, I I approve. I, you know, when I did this podcast, I was. Oh, that's because you have a rational podcast. That's <laughs> trying to. <laughs> I try to. I try to get rationality into what I'm doing. I, I did an intro to science. I did some episodes on climate change and evolution and vaccines, and GMOs. Uh, and then I did one on uh, how glyphosate doesn't appear to be a human carcinogen. And, and maybe Monsanto is not the devil incarnate. And I, I basically lost half my audience. And it's like, um, oh, I, I hear you've provided some information on GMOs. So my advice is maybe don't look too deeply into glyphosate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I narrated a, a, uh, a documentary about uh, GMOs. And I didn't create the documentary, but I sort of approved its content and made some suggestions. But it was primarily the work of a documentarian named Scott Kennedy, who is, you know, he's left-leaning in his worldview and his outlook. Mm -hmm. uh, but he noticed that there are certain postures that people on the left take that is not founded in either rational thinking or science. And it's very... Uh, it, it serves a a a worldview that is not itself entirely based in science, and that's a curious fact because the left commonly criticizes criticizes the right for being anti-science. Much agree. Primarily citing and justifiably the denial of human-caused climate change, and that of course poses existential threats. So that's that's climate that's science denial on a on a very extreme level that has global consequences. A lot of the science denial that existed on the left is affected just the individual. If you, if you choose not to buy GMO, okay, okay. But if you do things that then have global consequences, and by the way, the first anti-vaxxers were people on the left. It only worked its way into, and, and their reasons were because they were anti-pharma and anti-sort mm -hmm. of some mainstream science related to it. And then the right became anti-vax out of freedom, and this is America, and this is, and so there they meet on the other side of the fence, and now they, they account for nearly a fourth of all uh, of the country that's not vaccinated. So, so anyhow, so the, so the GMO, there's an interesting fact about glyphosate if you look at, you know about LD50? Yes. It's a, it's a ranking of lethality of a, a substance that you might ingest. And you can create this scale for practically anything um, that's ingestible. It wouldn't even have to be food. That's the right. lowest dose to kill half of a test subpopulation. Correct. So uh, it's a lowest dose per kilogram of body weight, where if you, <clears throat> no, not lowest dose, lethal dose. So if, if, so the way that works is, they do this with mice, of course, which have sufficiently similar DNA to humans, although humans don't want to admit that, um, that there's, there's so much correspondence to 
what happens to them relative to us. They get cancer, they get obesity, they get addicted. There's a lot of similar things. Mm -hmm. So they do this on mice and you, you, you give them an, an ever increasing dose until you see that half of them die. And so that's an LD50. Yep. So the, the lethal dose for uh, glyphosate is higher than the lethal dose for salt. Yes, yes. So in other words, a, a, a higher lethal dose means it's less lethal to you. You can take more of it before you die, right? And so I, I, when I communicate with the public, I just try to put this kind of information out there and then let them decide on their own. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard because people get very, you know, the heels get dug in. They do. Because they, they, they believe something to be true. Worldviews. And then they cherry pick the, well, you know this, you, you, if, if, with a podcast named Rationality, <laughs> this would be center point to everything you talk about. Indeed. You, you believe, you have a worldview, and then you cherry pick information to support that worldview. And then you're content in how you go about life. Yeah. For having done so. I, I agree with your observation as well that there's, you know, anti-science on both sides of the political spectrum. This is not a monopoly of the right. This there's anti-science just as strongly on the left and you know at the extremes especially where worldview seems to trump facts and evidence. Yeah, I would say it slightly differently only just to be precise because if you tell someone that they are something and they don't believe they're that, then you're not reaching them at all. So no liberal will say, I am anti-science. What is true is for them to hold the beliefs they do, they must reject some or all mainstream science on that subject. Mm -hmm. They have to reject it. And when I've had this conversation, often the reply was, well, I reject it because farmers is only into big money and, and, it's, and that's why I reject it. So they, they, they sort of justify it on the claim that they've done the research and they're saying that the science that says they're wrong is what's wrong, thereby sustaining, being able to sustain their view. And in the limit, you get conspiracy theories. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, I try to provide evidence-based assessments and show listeners how to apply uh, the tools of skepticism and follow the scientific method. And I think that's important is to get critical thinking and question, always question your beliefs, always challenge your assumptions. And I've, I've spent a lot of time on issues surrounding greenhouse gases and anthropogenic climate change and working to try to help, you know, communicate with, you know, Enter the other echo chamber and listen and address people's concerns uh, without caricaturing and calling names. And, and that's how you have to get across this divide that's immobilizing society on these issues, I think. To, to the extent that people tune out because they think you're preaching to them, then the value of what you're doing is you're equipping your audience who are following you and who are listening and, and, and learning you're equipping them with tools for their next Thanksgiving dinner, where, <laughs> where the uncle <laughs> yes. comes over. You know, there's always, <laughs> you know, any more than five people at a gathering, there's going to be somebody who has views that are very different from the others that is not based uh, on science or, or rational thought. 
I would say also that you can't always use reason to, how does that saying go? You can't use reason to argue someone out of a point that they didn't use reason to get into. Uh, it's a nice adage. I, I don't think it's entirely true, but it's something to keep in mind when you're having such a conversation. Yeah, I think many of our decisions are not rational, and, and rationality is, is how we rationalize our emotional attachment to an issue. Yeah, and I would say, uh, just, to, just to stir the pot here, uh, I would say most of what is remarkable and beautiful in the world created by humans did not derive from any kind of rational conduct or behavior. Like uh, the greatest of our art, you're not saying, well, that was done rationally. It's, that's not the state of mind or the emotion. There's nothing rational about Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night, right? That, that's not what the sky looked like at all to anybody at the time, <laughs> okay? With the swirly things and the, and, but that's surely what the sky felt like to him. And so, uh, so I think when you discuss rationality, there are many people who thrive in their lives in, in ways that come nowhere near rationality. And these are very important to them, but it would include religion. It would include, like I said, art. It would include any emotions they feel towards someone or against someone. These are very real to people. So um, I, rather than, because rationality is a label. Are you rational or are you not? Whereas I'd rather think of it just tactically, if for any other reason, if for no other reason, to think of it as not branded as rationality, but just say, how close to reality do you want to be? And science has developed methods and tools for you to see what is real, objectively real, so that you can make decisions that are in the best interest of your life, uh, your health, your longevity, and for your loved ones. So, so that's just, a, I just put that out there. We're going to put the interview on hold right there. That was... Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson on The Rational View. And we'll continue next week with the remainder of the interview. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.